at one of the most remarkable documents that has ever been written, authored by one man and compiled around 700 BC, this prophecy of Isaiah helped inform New Testament writers in a way no other Old Testament book did. That's why as a church we've been carefully working our way through it, and we've recently returned to our studies by looking at the final section in Isaiah, namely chapters 56 to 66. And this morning, our attention turns to Isaiah 57, verses 14 to 21. It was a passage that Matt read for us. It's on page 745. I'd like it, if you've got a Bible, to have it open in front of you because we're going to be looking at it in some detail. Now, whenever we consider one of the 66 books that goes to make up our Bible, we need to earth it in its historical context to understand what the writer was saying to his readers at that time when it was written. And Isaiah was living at one of the most momentous periods in Israel's history. The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and scattered at this time. The mighty northern superpower of Assyria was flexing its muscles. And the small southern kingdom of Israel, which is usually known as Judah, was facing huge pressures to form political alliances with ungodly neighbors. And Isaiah comes on the scene and reminds them, reminds Judah especially, of their covenant, of their agreement, of their contract with Almighty God. Trust Him, he tells them. Don't look to others for your deliverance. But in Isaiah, his message goes further than that. If it was just that, then we wouldn't be looking at it. This morning, it would just be an historical document. But his message goes further than that. Under the leading of God, he tells them what will happen when they reject God's word. He tells them that Babylon, at that time a fairly small and insignificant nation, Babylon will rise up to dominate the scene and will actually then lead Judah off into exile. And Isaiah also tells them that after a period of time, some will return to their devastated homeland. And remarkably, this all came true about a century after he had written these words, with the return to the land taking place 70 years beyond that, around about 537 BC. So there's stuff in this book that has particular bearing upon these issues. And as we look at it, as we examine it, there is another filter, there is another focus, there is another lens, as it were, that we have to uh, look through. But there's a third perspective to this book that includes us. Here and now, 
It's to do with God's promise to save people for his own honor and glory. It's to do with God's unchanging character and his gracious rescue plan to adopt rebels into his family. It was true back in 700 BC as it pointed forward towards the work of Jesus. And it's true in 2018 as we look back to what Jesus did. And all three of these perspectives from Isaiah are visible in the passage we're looking at this morning. Now, last week, our senior pastor Paul pointed us to the reign of Manasseh, Judah's most wicked king, which probably formed the backdrop to all that Isaiah was saying in these chapters. Now, Manasseh was the worst. Really, he was the worst. Just listen to these summary verses of his life. They'll be up on screen as well. 2 Chronicles 33, verses 5 to 6. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. In fact, tradition has it that it was Manasseh, this king Manasseh, this wicked king Manasseh, who killed the elderly Isaiah by having him sawn in half. And we saw last week how Manasseh's wicked leadership had corrupted the whole land, and it's described in verses, as we saw, which are full of graphic images and shocking language. But it did end with a note of hope. As the Lord speaks there in the second half of verse 13. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. So as we enter the next section of Isaiah, we find, and this is my first point, a word of hope for those who seek God. A word of hope for those who seek God. You see, the national leaders and the governing elites were not seeking refuge in God. They preferred to put their trust in their possessions and their idols and in their political alliances. But there was still a small proportion of the population there in Judah who held on to the true worship of the true God, who hadn't been swept away and along in the prevailing godless culture. And the Lord addresses these words to them. Let's have a look at those words. It's verses 14 to 16, again on screen, but do check it in your Bible. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also, but also, 
with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. In other words, although God is unimaginably holy and separate from all sinners, yet he still delights to fellowship and to make himself known to those who are contrite. And lowly. In fact, actually, that word contrite is the same word we find in Isaiah chapter 53. It's a very famous chapter where Jesus, the suffering servant, is described, you may remember it, as being crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's the same word, that word crushed, as we have here in contrite. You, you see, it has that sense of being loaded down with the awful weight of our sin and condemnation. It is that sense of how utterly unworthy we are before God. And that word lowly goes with that word contrite because it describes people who know that their rightful place is at the bottom of the pile. That's what happens when you're contrite. That's what happens when you see yourselves as you really are before God. You are devastated. You are crushed low. You are the lowest of the low. And such people, contrite and lowly, are the ones with whom Almighty God makes his home. People who feel so desperate and unworthy and yet are the very ones that God promises to revive in spirit and heart. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's it. That's it. Actually, it's what was described by Jesus in a, in a story. You may remember this story. It's from Luke's Gospel. Chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, Jesus tells this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you see? That, that, that's it. That's contrite and lowly. When I have nothing to boast about, when I don't look at someone and say, look, <laughs> I'm better than them. When I realize that before God, my very best stinks. It's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount as he began that most famous of sermons. There in Matthew 5, verses 2 into 4, he said, Jesus said, blessed are the 
poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You see, that's it. That's precisely it. People who see themselves for who and what they really are and yet cling on to the grace and goodness of God. There is hope for such as those. And as we'll see a little later, it's only God who actually can bring about that change of heart in the first place. So there is a word of hope for those who seek God. But secondly, we notice that there is a word of warning for those who replace God. A word of warning for those who replace God. For the focus of attention switches in verse 17 away from those we've been talking about, the contrite and lowly, to those people who don't feel anything of the sort. But people who make themselves the center of their own universe, who replace God from his rightful place and put themselves there instead. Isaiah 57 verse 17. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. And by the way, can I just say, when the Lord describes people in their sinful greed, it has the sense in the Hebrew of anyone who puts self-interest first. Now, you may have thought that sinful greed describes someone other than you, that it's really describing something that you may have read about on the internet this morning. Someone who's really bad. But actually, if you are not treasuring Jesus Christ above all else, then could I say you fit into that description? If you're chasing after what you think will make you happy rather than what will bring him glory, then you are characterized. You're in this, this category of sinful greed. And I want us to see what that leads to. Firstly, you see, it enrages God. Do you see the Lord says, I was enraged by your sinful greed. Now, now please, please, don't think that this is describing the petulant behavior of someone who is easily irritated. Don't imagine that this is the sort of anger that suddenly flares up when something bad happens. You know the sort of stuff, you're driving along the road and uh, it's all quiet and you're a good driver and then sudden, suddenly someone cuts in in front of you, what do you do? It, it's amazing, suddenly it is that anger that flares up, you're hitting the horn. You're maybe mouthing stuff in case they're looking in the mirror. You're maybe making signs with your hands that you wish you didn't make. Maybe you're working out. Do you still have that hump, lump of heavy metal in the boot of the car? Because such is the anger and rage that has been provoked all of a sudden. No, that is not what is being described here. This describes the settled response of a holy God to all that's unholy. It's the steady reaction of a king to willful rebellion. This describes the natural and deep and awful wrath that is aroused in God by every single person who rejects his way and lives for themselves. God's anger is there. But then secondly, you notice God responds 
I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them. You see, God is just. God can't be mocked. Sin can't be overlooked. He's not some sort of benign deity and he just lifts up a corner of some carpet and just says, that's fine, we'll brush it underneath. He cannot do that. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely just. And sometimes God's response to sin is obvious. As consequences follow actions, at other times it is not so evident. But I tell you this, under the authority of God's word, that God will not let sin go. It must be dealt with. It cannot be overlooked. Our God is infinitely just. Thirdly, we see in this verse that part of God's anger and punishment upon sin is to withdraw his presence and let sin run its course. He says, I hid my face in anger. I hid my face in anger. Do you know, of all the judgments against sin, little is more horrifying than God should remove his presence and his restraining care from a person's life. That he should let that person get what their basest instincts desire. And some of the most horrifying judgments of God are when we read that he gave people over. He gave people over. That he no longer restrained them from chasing after their most poisonous longings. And then, fourthly, despite God's anger being upon their lives, these people keep on, as we're told, in their willful ways. They've become hardened by sin. Their their conscience no longer troubles them. They now accept what they once knew was unacceptable. And they can even come to church and hear God's word preached and it just doesn't affect them. Why, even now, some are probably in this place quickly dismissing what they're hearing. You're probably here and you're thinking, yeah, it's fine, this is just these Christians going on a bit heavy about sin, a bit heavy about guilt. Uh, but, but I'm fine. I'm a good person. I, I try my best. No, 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 no. The Bible says you're being hardened in your heart. You see, there is a word of hope for those who seek God. There is a word of warning for those who replace God. But thirdly, I notice there is a word of grace for those who ignore God. A word of grace for those who ignore God. Look how verse 17 flows into verse 18. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways. So so what would you expect to follow? What would most naturally flow on? Perhaps something along the lines of God saying he would completely blot them out. Or how he would destroy them in his anger. But what we get instead is one of the most remarkable and unexpected links. Verses 18 to 19. I have seen their ways, but. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. 
peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. You know, I've been tempted to do a sermon series on the greatest buts in the world, but um, was warned that it wouldn't go down too well with any American listeners. Um, but whatever our language confusions, this is a great but. This is towering. This is magnificent. This is a stupendous declaration. Do you hear what is being said here? Despite all the vileness of our sin and rebellion, the high and exalted and holy God determines to heal sinners for his glory. And how will he do it? Well, the text makes clear. He will guide them. And what does that mean? It means he will redirect the sinner, that he'll reveal to them how weak and sinful and helpless they really are and how loving and gracious he really is. He'll make them into the contrite and lowly. And this all becomes clearer to Isaiah's readings, readers having encountered the message which is back there in chapter 53. They now actually see, oh, I, I, they're going, I see how this is possible. Because in, in chapter 53, it talks about peace, how peace will be obtained. It talks about how healing will be given. And chapter 53 is all about the work of God's servant, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 6 says this, But he, that is Jesus, the servant, the son of God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, see, peace, was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How are we healed? How do we experience peace? The Bible is clear. It is through the work of Jesus on the cross. When he took our sin and failure upon himself and he suffered and died in our place. And they looked forward to that day. And we look back now upon those historical events almost 2,000 years ago outside the city walls of Jerusalem, where that happened in time and space. Jesus of Nazareth died and rose again. Little wonder that in Isaiah it goes on to say that Israel's mourners will be comforted. Little wonder that praise will characterize their speech. Little wonder that the fact that God can save both the best and the worst is part of their praise. Some translators think that part of their praise is that expression, peace, peace, to those far and near. They are going, they are praising God and saying, Father, you're awesome. You are saving for yourself people who don't deserve it. You're saving people who are far away, Gentiles, sinners. And you're saving people who are near, who have the covenant and the words of the law. As Isaiah penned these words, I, I wonder if he had in mind King Manasseh, 
that most evil and wicked and defiled individual. The one who so hated God's word and God's messengers that he would have them killed. The one who was probably further from God than any that he could think of. Just listen, would you, to how Manasseh's story ends? It's in 2 Chronicles 33. It'll be on screen. Let me read it to you. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord had brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. My friends, can I say this? If God can save a Manasseh, then he can save you. You're not beyond his mercy. You're not outside the scope of his forgiveness. You're not a helpless case. You see, it's, it's quite possible you're sitting here this morning and you're going, Andy, if you could see my heart, if you could see the way really I've fouled up and I've just fouled up time and time and time and time again. Look, Andy, if you knew the stuff I've seen and done during this last week, you wouldn't say for me that there is hope. But I am saying there is hope for you. The Bible says there is hope for you. If God can rescue a Manasseh who killed his children and killed the prophets and despised God, he can save you. He can rescue you. He can deal with you. You, you are not outside his love and mercy. If you turn to him this morning, the Bible promises are that you will be received and forgiven. Your sin and guilt can be dealt with. Your shame can be turned to honor. Your fear can be turned to peace. A word of hope for those who seek God. A word of warning for those who replace God. A word of grace for those who ignore God. But finally, a word of dread. For those who defy God. A word of dread for those who defy God. For lest you imagine that this good news is automatically applied to all indiscriminately, this passage goes on to make clear that for those who refuse to come under the gracious rule of Christ, then there will be no peace. Either in their own lives or between them and God. Have a look at verses 20 to 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. See, in, the, in a pond, you'll know well enough, when the waters are still, sediment settles 
at the bottom and the waters look clear. But where there are waves, where there is constant movement, then the sediment is stirred up and, and quickly becomes visible. The muck and the mire color everything with that constant moving of the waves. My friends, are you among those who, who know peace with God? Have you been humbled by the sight of your sin and the wonder of the Savior? Have you known that, that comfort for those who, who mourn that God is for us and, and not against us? Or are you still classed among the wicked, the self-serving, the constantly striving, the ones who know no peace? Either with this world or with the God who made it. I don't know where you stand. Only God knows the heart. But it is my hope and my longing that, that men and women, indeed boys and girls, in this building today would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and understand the grace and mercy of the sovereign God whose salvation story towers over our history. The God who is active in space and time. The God who is still speaking. The God who takes failures like an Andy Patterson and forgives him his sin and cleanses him from his guilt and adopts him into his family. The God who can save and, and rescue you. The God who can make you to be a new creation where the old has gone, the, the new has come. Look, there's some ways that you could respond to it. There's, there is one way. The most fearful way is the way we've just looked at. There are those who defy God, and you can say, I don't care. This is a fairy tale. This is a story. I don't care. I'm not going to surrender my life to Almighty God. Okay, but understand there are going to be consequences for your actions. Just, just understand that you have been warned. But if you're saying, well, maybe I want to know more about this. I, I want to seek this God. I want to find out what is this glorious gospel message. Then there are a number of things you can do. One is you could come along to Life Explored. There's some advertising around it. You'll find it in the bulletin. And if you were to go at the end of this service to where there are a couple of settees, uh, as I'm looking at it, it's on my left-hand side. As you go out, it's on your left-hand side. There will be someone there who, who would just very happily tell you more about the Life Explored course. It runs over seven evenings, and it would be great if you can come along to do that. That would be wonderful. That would give an opportunity to ask questions and ask more. Uh, another thing you could do is a while back I, I wrote uh, a little gospel, uh, a little commentary. I didn't write a gospel, please. I did not write a gospel. Um, I, uh, I wrote a little commentary on the gospel, on John's gospel. Um, if you are serious about wanting to think more about what the Bible teaches, I mean if you're serious. I'm not just saying if you want to add to your bookshelf. Okay? But if you are serious and, and you say, I'd like to think more about this, then maybe you'd like to use this. I'm going to leave four copies at the front. It will be a case of first come, uh, first served, and there will be other copies available for sale at the back if you want to, to, to get some more. But as you look at the whole of John's Gospel, you'll understand something about the wonderful saving power of what Jesus has done for sinners. Even better than that is to read the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, look, I've got a couple of uh, copies 
of the Bible here that I'd love you to, to read. Maybe start in John's Gospel, start or in Mark's Gospel. Maybe you'd like to do that. Again, with those other books, I'll leave them down there. Read the Bible. Don't just take my word for it. Just don't think, well, that's, that's that guy speaking in that building. Look, check it out for yourself. Seek God. If you seek God, the Bible promises, he'll find you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible wisdom and design of your word. Thank you for the things it speaks into our lives. Father, thank you that indeed you're the God who's dealt with sin. Lord, there's so much in our lives that disturbs us and distresses us. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world of death and disappointment. But Father, we thank you that by your grace and goodness, you have dealt with the problem. You've dealt with sin. You rose again. The Lord Jesus rose again, defeating sin and death and hell. We thank you for the hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the promise that is extended even to folks like us. Lord, for those in this place who as yet do not know Jesus, who haven't yet surrendered their lives to him, may this be the morning when they come and ask Jesus to be their friend and their Lord and their Savior. And we ask it for their good, and we ask it for his glory. Amen.